Uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, once again, we are so thankful for the gift of your word and that in it you have a message for us of encouragement um, and a reminder of who you are. And uh, we ask that you would, by your spirit, open our hearts to receive that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And good morning. Uh, how are you doing? Oh, one person's doing great. That's great. Um, my name is Andrew. I'm a pastor here. And uh, for those of you maybe who don't, who don't know a little bit of my story, I, I actually didn't become a Christian until I was 18, so a little later in life. I had, just, I had just begun attending a Christian school for college, which is a long story of how I ended up there. But I still remember uh, that period in my life where I first believed in God. I accepted that Jesus was his son and that he died for me. And there, uh, there wasn't really a moment where I accepted that, like a dramatic moment, but, but there was certainly a dramatic change in my life and my perspective uh, from that day forward. I remember those early days uh, being so excited to live out this new faith, this new identity that I had in God. And it's in some ways hard to describe um, to someone who's, who's always believed in God what that moment can be like. It's, it's two different kind of journeys. Um, but <clears throat> it's hard to describe what it's like uh, to wake up, to not believe in God, to feel completely alone, uh, to feel completely vulnerable to what life might throw at you. And it was truly liberating me, for me as, as, a, as a new Christian to not feel that anymore and to know that I wasn't alone, to know that I was being taken care of. And uh, it was in many ways like being freed from a kind of slavery. And uh, what, that's part of the reason why the Bible uses the image of slavery and freedom so much when it talks about salvation. And I, and I felt that. I was finally free. I felt free, or so I thought. Because a few weeks into this newfound salvation identity, my, my girlfriend and I broke up. And yeah, someone laughed. And, and at first service, people laughed at my pain as well. Um, <laughs> but, which I, I don't get. But, uh, <laughs> and you know, I can chuckle now, but at the time, I was I was devastated. And suddenly, my world was just shattered all over again. I was, I was alone again. I was scared again. And I felt like a slave again. And what that moment showed me so clearly was that even though I, I knew I had been pronounced free from sin in Jesus, I was still living very much like a slave. And this is exactly where we find the nation of Israel in our text this morning. If you've been following with us in our series, you know that Israel has just been delivered from slavery in Egypt, and after 400 years of bitter slavery, they're free. And God, if, you, if you've read the Exodus story so far, God spared no expense in freeing Israel, uh, incredible signs, daring escapes, miraculous interventions, and Israel's finally free on her way to the promised land. And if the Bible were a fairy tale, this is where it would read, and they all lived happily ever after. But it's not a fairy tale. It's real life. And as we're going to see throughout uh, much of the rest of of this story, uh, things go anything but smoothly for Israel from here on out. Now, why is that? Well, it's really the same reason that the Christians you beat, even the most mature Christians you know, are still pretty messed up and flawed and anxious and sinful people. Uh, because what, what, we're, what we're beginning to see in Scripture and see in God's pattern of salvation, how he saves people, is that getting people out of slavery is relatively easy. It's just like oh, a miracle here, a parted sea there. 
Um, seriously, this is the hard part. What's really hard and what takes a long time is getting the slavery out of people. It's true of Israel. It's true of us. And what's truly surprising in our story this morning is how God decides to deal with that issue in Israel. Uh, to get the people out of slavery, you'll remember God led them out of Egypt. Uh, but to get the slavery out of people, God leads them into the wilderness. That's what we're going to see. God leads them into the wilderness. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. Uh, so here's, here's where we're going this morning. Our text answers three questions. Uh, that you can write them down on how God frees us from the slavery within. And this is where we're going this morning. So the, the questions are first, what is the wilderness? Why does God lead us to the wilderness? And then finally, how do we survive the wilderness? So what is the wilderness? Why does God lead us there? And how do we survive it? So first, what, what exactly is the wilderness? So if you remember, when we read chapter, uh, Exodus 16 a few moments ago, Israel is in the wilderness. And when we think of wilderness, when we hear that word, we often think of something close to this. We think of, uh, right, a jungle, it's overgrown, it's unruly, it's full of exotic and beautiful and dangerous animals. But when the Bible talks about the wilderness, like in verse 1, like in our story, uh, Israel's in the wilderness, it's not talking about this, it's talking about something more like this, a desert. The wilderness in the Bible is a desert, Now, the desert, unless you're crazy, is not a fun place to be. And uh, if, if you've ever played Settlers of Catan, you know that I'm right, because the desert square, right, is the worst square because it doesn't, doesn't produce anything. So even Milton Bradley understands this point, is what I'm saying. Um, the desert, okay, the desert is really known for one thing. Nothing lives there. Nothing lives there. Mostly because no life is really sustainable there. There's no food, there's no water, there's no shelter. Human life in particular is not sustainable there. In a word, the wilderness that Israel finds herself in is harsh, it's difficult, and it's extremely uncomfortable. It is anything but the promised land that that God has described to them as a land flowing with milk and honey. And for reasons like this, throughout Scripture, wilderness will become a a, a picture or a metaphor for difficult periods in life. Periods of tremendous pain or loss or heartache or want or confusion, of spiritual starvation or of doubt, things like that. What what we find here is that not only is the wilderness inhospitable and tough terrain for Israel, it's also out of the way. It's extremely out of the way. And if we look at this map, we'll see, we'll see the point. So here's Egypt on the left. Israel's just left Egypt. And then in the upper right is Canaan, is the promised land. And then down where this arrow is, is the wilderness of sin, which is where Israel is. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not gifted with directions, but it looks like they took a wrong turn, right? I mean, it's, they're, they're going way out of their way. After 400 years of waiting, Israel finds herself moving further, it seems, from God's promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. So we're immediately struck with this question. If the wilderness is so terrible, if it's so hard, if it's so out of the way, then what in the world is Israel doing there? And this clearly confused Israel as well as their complaints show in the text we just read. And frankly, it confuses us, it confuses us too. If we, if we apply this to ourselves... I doubt that there is any question that haunts Christians more than this one 
which is why does God allow bad things, hard things, difficult things to happen to the people that he loves? I thought we were saved. I thought we were loved. I thought that you, God, would protect me from things like this, and yet here I am. I'm in the wilderness, in difficulty, in pain, in trouble, and I'm suffering. And why am I here? What's going on? And the only answer the text gives to that question for Israel and for us, we find ourselves in times of wilderness in life because God leads us there. See, God is not just spiritually leading Israel at this point. He's physically leading them by a cloud, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And, and Israel's literally following God, going where he goes and stopping where he stops. So we see the reason Israel is in a place with no food and no water. The reason they're in these difficult places, these scary places, these uncomfortable places, is because God put them there. It's a part of his plan. So this leads to our second question. If the wilderness is so difficult and so out of the way, why in the world does God lead us there? Why does God lead us there? And God leads us there, we find, because the wilderness, right, our troubles, our struggles, our suffering more than anything else shows us how enslaved we really are. And we see that this is true in verse 3 of the text we read. Here's how Israel reacts to the wilderness they find themselves in. They say, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And you see, when Israel first sensed this hint of trouble, right, we're running out of food, they felt they had a decision to make, and they thought we can either have God and die in the wilderness, or we can have the comforts of Egypt, we can have the wealth and the opulence and the food of Egypt, but return to slavery. And if you put it, you put it in, that, in that light, that decision in that light, you begin to understand why they're leaning, let's go back to Egypt. But they're wrong. And they've forgotten the lesson that they learned in Egypt. Remember, Egypt, which is in the, the Nile River Valley, in, 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 a, in an arid place, is, is, one, is one of the most fertile places in, in that whole region. For all its splendor and power, it's the, most, it's the most powerful kingdom in the world at this time, for all its beauty and its wealth. After the plagues, after the plagues is a place without food. At this time in Egypt, when Israel's saying this, they are without food. And what we will see in the rest of the story is that the wilderness, which is supposed to be a place without beauty, without food, without life, will be covered in bread. Bread from God. And what God is teaching Israel and us is this, is that the very best circumstances in life, everything's going the way you want it to go, the very best circumstances in life without God is actually a place of death. And the very worst circumstances in life, the most difficult periods we find ourselves in, with the presence of God, can be a place of life and of food and of abundance, and of strength. And when Israel forgets that, when they choose comfort, when they're tempted to choose comfort over God, they are returning to a deeper slavery than they ever experienced under the Egyptians. They are returning to a slavery of life without God. 
It's true of them, it's true of us. You can, you can get the, the people out of slavery quickly. You can do it in an instant. But what you can, only, you can only get the slavery out of people in the wilderness. Because only the wilderness will teach us that God is truly enough. Our comforts, our securities without God, they enslave us. If we want freedom, we must choose God over them. And that is why Israel's not in the promised land. Because the promised land is not the promised land if God doesn't meet you there. Israel thinks they need water. They think they need bread. They think they need meat to be free. But God is saying, what you need more than those is me. And if we grasp that, if we can grasp that in our times of wilderness, in those times where we're hurt or confused, those times where we do not understand why we are where we are, we are free to rest in God who does not change instead of in our circumstances, which do. And now, I want to say two things before moving on because some of you may be sitting there and you're thinking, so what you're saying is that God is the reason, he's the, he's the author behind the bad things that happen in our lives uh, just, just so we can trust him more. And the answer to that is no. Now, for two two biblical reasons that I want to share. So first, the first is when God made the world in Genesis 1, which we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, one of the main points of that text is that God created everything. He created uh, the light, the earth, the oceans, the land, the fish, the animals. He created everything. But you know what the Bible never says God made? Deserts. Wilderness. There's never a time In Genesis 1, where God says, now put a harsh, uninhabitable, terrible place right here. He never does that. And the suffering of the world, death and sin and evil, none of that was a part of that design. None of it. And in the life of Jesus, who is the most complete revelation of God, we see him confronting death and evil head on. He's literally enraged by it. As much as we care about the injustice of those, those things, God cares more. But, and this is the second thing, God uses those hard things. He uses that pain, he uses the hardship, not unlike a loving father, to make us into beautiful and glorious creatures. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses understood this. In Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 1, Verses 1 to 5, Moses is reflecting on, their, on Israel's time in the wilderness and he's speaking to a new generation that's about to enter the promised land. And here's, here's what he says to them. He says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. And then he concludes this way. Know then in your heart that as a man, as a father disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And so we see, along with Moses, that this hardship in the wilderness, all the difficult things that enter our lives, are not allowed there to punish us. They are not allowed there to earn God's favor. We are already sons and daughters in Jesus. We're already rescued. We're already free, just like Israel. But as a loving father, God disciplines us. He disciplines us. And when you think about it that way, you you see that all parents, from love for their children, discipline them. 
Every parent at times withholds good things and does not stop bad things from entering the lives and experiences of their children, right? When my daughter was, uh, started moving around, she started walking, Becca and I were really excited. Um, and as a young parent, you kind of look for those milestones, right? You're, you're eager for them. You can't wait. We couldn't wait for Avery to start walking. And then when she did, we were overjoyed. We were so excited until she started moving toward an outlet that we hadn't covered because we didn't know what we were doing. And uh, suddenly our excitement turned to terror and uh, we, we realized what, what was happening. And so I, I dove to, to catch her and I won't, I won't show you how I did that, but I dove and I caught her and I pulled her back from the wall and she screamed at me. And it was the first of many experiences like that, I'm sure. Um, but... <laughs> For her, for her in that moment, what I did was, it was an inexplicable and incomprehensible tragedy for which I will never be forgiven, right? But for me and for everyone else in the room, it was just good parenting. To Avery, I withheld something she was convinced was good for her. But for me, I protected her from an unforeseen danger and pain. And of course, eventually, by doing things like that, I will teach Avery to steer clear of dangerous things because as a father, my goal is not to give Avery everything that she wants or even to protect her from all of life's pain. My my job is to nurture her into adulthood, to make her through discipline a glorious and beautiful human being. That is the goal of every parent. To want less for her would be to minimize my love for her. And the same is true with God. If God wanted less for us than that, he would be, it would be to minimize his love for us. So we begin to see that for Israel and for us, without the wilderness, we might know that God is Savior. We might know that God is powerful. We might even know that he's king of the world. But what we could never know without the wilderness is that God is Father that he loves us enough to discipline, to shape us, to make us into the people we were created to be, and to show us in those moments that he will always provide. He will always provide. And that is the job of a father. And this leads to our last point this morning. God does not leave us to fend for ourselves in these times of wilderness. As the story goes on to show, he, he provides tremendously and miraculously. So our final question how do we survive the wilderness? When we find ourselves there, how do we survive it? And, and a quick note, I say survive very intentionally because the wilderness, in the wilderness, you can die. In Israel's story, we'll see that many Israelites die in the wilderness. And in our own lives and experience, we, they died a physical death. We see that when people enter pain and, and suffering, sometimes it starts a long, slow process of emotional death in them. You can die in the wilderness. Suffering, in other words, suffering and hardship, they either move you closer to life and wisdom and joy or closer to death and bitterness and anger. And if you're in the midst of wilderness right now, you must know, we all must know that that the wilderness does not leave us the way it found us. Suffering does not leave us as we are. But what we learn here is that there is always, always manna in the desert. There is always manna in the desert. 
Now, manna in, in our story is, is physical bread that God sends down to feed Israel. Uh, but it really becomes a symbol of any and all of God's miraculous provision and difficulty. And it's never too late to look for it. And it's never too late to find it. We survive the wilderness by God's manna, the same way Israel does. And we learn several principles about manna, about the way God provides uh, in this story this morning. And there are four principles in particular I want to highlight, and that, that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing. So here's what we learn about manna, how we survive in the wilderness. The first thing we learn about manna is that manna starts by turning truth into bread. Manna starts by turning truth into bread. And Moses makes this point, again, back in Deuteronomy 8. He says, And God humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So in the physical wilderness, says Moses, the manna was bread, but in the spiritual wilderness, in the personal wilderness, in the emotional wilderness that maybe some of us find ourselves in today, the manna points to something else. It points to every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, says Moses. And that's the Bible. That's scripture. This is every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now we may say we know these things intellectually, we know them cognitively, we may even say we believe them to be true, everything the Bible says, but for it to become manna, that truth must be turned into bread. It has to become food, it must be chewed on, it must be tasted and digested and internalized and worked into our system. That's part of the reason we're doing Open Here, because reading this, this book every day, because this book, says Moses, is how you are sustained in the wilderness. You must, you must, through it, see your circumstances, see your suffering and your problems. Through it, and not the other way around. For it to become manna. And see, many of us, we see our suffering, or our questions, or our problems, and we, through those, we see God's promises, and then we think him a liar, we think him absent. And the manna festers, it spoils just like in our story in Exodus, we'll see that when the Israelites gather the manna in a way that God says they shouldn't, it immediately spoils and it's no longer helpful. It's no longer helpful to sustain them. If, we, if, if they gathered out of turn, it would spoil. But if instead you start with the promises in this book, if you internalize the truth that you are a child of God, then suddenly your suffering is transformed. And you're strengthened to meet it. And you begin to thrive in the wilderness. We must begin by turning the truth that we know into the very bread that we live on. That's what Moses is saying. Here's the second thing we learn about manna. We see that God's manna is always free, but it's never cheap. In other words, it is completely God's doing. But it always requires something of us. So, Notice that when Israel was saved out of Egypt, that first act of liberation that God does for them, they did absolutely nothing. God says, walk through the Red Sea, and they say, okay, and that's, that's the most they do. They're passive. They simply receive God's original gift of liberation. But in the second part, in working it out, this liberation into their daily life, they have to go get it. There are rules for the manna. 
I mean, think about it this way. If God could miraculously make bread appear on the ground, why didn't he just go all the way and make it appear in their stomach? I mean, imagine if they would wake up and say, man, I am hungry. Oh, oh, there it is. Yum. Now I'm ready for the day. He could have done that, right? But God purposely says no to that. He says no. He says, you've got to go get it. And he gives all these rules and provisions for how to gather it, when to gather it, how to store it in the rest of the chapter. God's provision, in this sense, it's free, but it's not cheap. And here's what I think that might look like in our own lives. Just a few examples. Are you struggling with, do you want freedom from a sin in your life? You're struggling with a sin. Uh, God isn't just going to zap it out of you. Uh, That might be what you're asking for, but he probably won't do that. Instead, he might be calling you to that first step of confession to someone. And that's hard and that's painful, but there's manna there. Another example, maybe you're struggling with doubt. You You have serious questions about your faith. Don't wait for God to prove himself to you in a burning bush. That's probably not going to happen. Talk to people, study, read, think. Work hard. There's manna to be found there. Are you struggling with loss or or, or pain? Tell someone you need help. Acknowledge that you cannot do this journey on your own and let the provision of God's people enter your pain. It's hard work. It may be the last thing that you want to do, but there's manna to be found there. Third principle about manna. Manna is sometimes very difficult to see. Sometimes it's very difficult to see. Uh, Now here's the funny thing about the word manna. It literally means, what is it? What is it? Uh, The Israelites in the story, they come outside one morning and they see all this stuff on the ground. And we know, of course, as we're reading, we know that this is food. This is exactly what they need. But they look at it and they say, what is that? They don't come out and say, oh, it's a miracle. They don't come out and say, praise God, thank you. They say, what in the world is this? And what am I supposed to do with it? And when God sends provision into our lives, we often, we often ask the same question. What in the world is that? Because the last thing it looks like is an opportunity for God to provide for you. It looks maybe something like pain or it looks like hard work. And maybe even sometimes it looks like tragedy. Uh, When I lived in Chicago, my my pastor and his wife there had recently moved back to the United States uh, just a few years prior before I met them. They were missionaries in Ukraine, which is where my pastor was from. He was Ukrainian. But they were forced to move back to the United States uh, because their third uh, daughter, Polly, was born and she was diagnosed with Down syndrome. And they knew that they just didn't have the facilities to take care of her well in Ukraine. So they came back to the U.S. And it was a huge turning point in the life of their family. And my, my pastor's wife, her name is Jillian, she, she writes a blog. Um, she recalls receiving the news in the hospital of, of Polly's diagnosis this way. Uh, just after the doctor told her that her daughter had Down syndrome, this is what she says happened. She says, a better mother would have probably bent down and drawn close to her child. She would meet her baby's sleepy eyes and vow to protect her and to treasure her. But I instead, I separated myself from Polly. 
and my feet were at once unstuck and I darted out of the room without even a glance back at the baby. I could not look at her. I was like a woman on, television sh- on a television show who dies and then watches people fuss around her dead body. I watched this woman run to her room. She flung herself down on the hospital bed and she howled. And I hovered above her, willing her to stop crying. And at that moment, that woman was not a person with faith in God. She was someone abandoned. And she continues, I'd, I'd already believed in Jesus for over half of my life. I attended church, I read scripture, I went to Bible college and became a missionary and then later a pastor's wife. And my faith was more than a career. I believed in Jesus, I really believed in Jesus. And yet when they told me that Polly had Down syndrome, my faith buckled with my legs. She entered the wilderness this moment. And years later, she discovered that hidden in the wilderness of this pain, Polly was God's manna. She says this. She says, when Polly was born, I mistakenly thought that she was broken because of her extra chromosome. But I was wrong. God didn't want to show me that Polly was broken. He was showing me that I was broken. And Jillian, when she wrote these words, discovered that her daughter was not a problem. She was a provision. She was a gift. She was, though difficult to see, manna in the desert. The key to that kind of manna revolves around the ability to see God's grace in something incredibly painful and difficult. And there's nothing harder to do in the Christian life. But the promise of this story is that there is always manna hidden in every situation we find ourselves in. Always manna. It may only get us through the day, it may only get us through the hour or the minute, but it is there. And of course, the prime example of that kind of manna, the the hidden kind, the confusing kind, the powerful kind, is the cross itself. It's God's grace hidden in excruciating pain. And this is really the last principle we see about manna. Manna, in every case, points to the true bread from heaven. In John chapter 6, Jesus says this about the reason he entered the world. And he's, saying, he's talking to the Jews. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus fulfills all manna. Because as difficult as the wilderness is that we have all experienced, God did not remain immune to it. In Jesus, he entered the wilderness. He entered our pain. He entered our suffering. And he redeems it. So that when we walk in difficult times and we're tempted to feel abandoned by God, when all we want is the comfort of Egypt again, for things to go back to the way they were before this thing happened, Jesus says to look to him He says, look at the cross. Look at the bread from heaven. And even if you cannot see where God is leading you, you can see there that he loves you. As a father loves his children. And he will always provide. Always. Let's pray. Father, we are so humbled by the gift of manna especially, Lord, the gift 
of your son who you sent from heaven. He entered our wilderness. He entered our pain. And he proved that you always have our best in mind, that you are our loving father. I ask by your grace, you empower us to internalize that manna, to turn that truth into the bread we live on every day. I ask this in his name.